This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Avery Schilf from Ross Valley Restores joins the Shift to find out what it's like to be the MacGyver of muscle cars. And you get to hear his thoughts on Dodge retiring the Challenger. Plus, what is your favorite car of all times? Your calls and texts. And also, the smartest people in the world are all in Canada for a very special conference. Andrew C. Ferreira tells us why, who they are, and if they could be able to solve the greatest problems in the universe. This is the Shift Podcast. And as we head toward the end of the work week, it is so nice to have you with us. I'm Bruce Claggett, again filling in for Shane Hewitt on this shift. It's my last uh, last day of the week filling in for Shane. Shane, of course, is going to be back after the weekend. With me is Ryan O'Donnell and DJBK Brendan Kelly. And it is mail-in Friday, so I'm told if any one of us makes any mistakes, well, you know. Let's mail it in Friday. Um, But that being said, we're going to be turning up the fun. And tonight, tonight we're going to talk about cars, in particular, muscle cars. And some of your favorite cars of the past. I'm really excited about our special guest, a guy often called the muscle car MacGyver. A co-star of the Shanton, B.C. in the interior. Shanton, B.C. Netflix series, Rust Valley Restores. A shift head, welcome to Avery Shof. Avery, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, absolutely, my pleasure. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay, but more importantly, how are you doing and how's your summer going? You know what? We've been out a little bit of a boat with a bunch of mosquitoes here, and they just about all died off, and we're just picking away, you know, just getting ready for doing season five. So that's what we're up to. Oh, you know, the mosquitoes, that, that's the one thing you just can't uh, let stand in the way. And I just like that you're just going to get by. Forget about the mosquitoes and dive right in, eh? <laughs> I don't know about forget about the mosquitoes because they don't forget about you, but the guy works around it and gets by, so that's all that counts. You know, uh, tell me about, I've always been curious about this uh, and uh, watching the episodes. How did you become involved in this Netflix series, you yourself, and how did it all come about? Me and Connor were actually friends before me and Mike were friends. Connor used to work for me in my rental business like many, many years ago. And Mike used to come down to the water and we uh, become friends over time and started talking about cars. And we were both into the same kind of uh, pre-owned artifacts, as you would say. And the friendship just kind of grew out of that. Friendship grew out of that, but where do we go from a friendship and talking about cars? Because as many of us know, there is a bond, a certain bond about cars and restoring cars, I would imagine, takes it to the next level. But how do you go from that to being, and I would argue, you are now a big time Netflix star and you're also out there with your own YouTube uh, channel. How did that all come to be? Well, I guess it's just the evolution of uh the evolution of things to be is kind of like the simple automobile. It goes to the Model T to now, I guess, the electric car era, I guess. And I don't know whether I'm happy about it or not. I don't know. You know, we are just talking uh, moments ago uh, with uh, Ben O'Hara Byrne about electric cars. And uh, I don't know if I'm happy about it either. When I uh, think about electric cars, I think, you know, I got to say they're fast off the line. But uh, you don't get that rumble, that feel, that excitement that I grew up with. And that's the romance is gone. Am I right? Is that kind of what you feel? I 100% agree with you. I remember I used to listen to my neighbor had a carbureted vehicle. I used to hear him start it every morning. 
Like you don't never hear anybody start a carbureted vehicle, hardly ever, ever, ever. So it's kind of uh, the evolution, whether it's good, whether it's bad. Myself personally, I think it's kind of bad to a certain extent. Again, the the love of the vehicle, the love of the V8 engine is almost kind of, you know, the way of the dodo bird, you could almost say, which is, in my world, I'm not happy about it. Well, no, I, and I can understand that. And first of all, I've got to say all credit to people that drive electric vehicles, and uh, I can see the value in that. But even for me, and I know a lot of people are not going to like this, but there's a certain sort of smell of a car that has a combustion engine. And uh, it's not just that. Yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, Avery. I'll tell you what. British vehicles. They got the most gassy smell there is. You just jump into them, the older British stuff, you're guaranteed to smell a little bit of gas seeping out of the old SU there somewhere. And, you know, the older stuff, 100%. You got a half-flooded carburetor, a little bit of backfire, some spitting, some coughing, some backfiring. You know, it's just all part of the love of the automobile. And that's kind of, you know, it's kind of all went away. It's kind of like getting an electric car nowadays is kind of like listening to your mom's sewing machine almost. (laughs) <laughs> that's what we used to describe the little four-cylinder cars back in the day oh yeah the ones with the sewing machine engine in them yeah. <laughs> or the weed uh, we eater call them having, having, having a hamster in there is what that, we talk yeah about that's right yeah uh, where you you know it could hit 60 miles an hour downhill um but uh you know so be it uh for those who watch rust valley restores on netflix They'll see you and Mike Hall walking around that big field of old, old, old cars. And I love this because some of them I can kind of picture uh, the old cars and what's happening. And uh, other ones uh, I can't really picture uh, how you can restore them. How does that come about? How do you decide which ones get restored, which ones don't? Well, it's just real simple. You walk by and you just look at the vehicle and I guess it goes back to your childhood. You see one you kind of like driving by at some point in time in your life, and you go, you know what, I really liked that car when I was younger, and I seen it go by. You know, let's, let's, you know what, let's check this one out. You want to do this one? Yeah, let's do this one. And uh, kind of gets picked like that, I guess. Picked from the heart, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And those of us who watch it on, of course, the Chorus platform, not just Netflix, the Chorus platform, um, you know, it, I'm, I'm still kind of glued, and uh, I, I still, I think you're not. That that comes to my mind when you're walking by some of those cars. I'm thinking, oh, don't do that. Don't do that to yourself. I feel for you, Avery. I feel my heart goes out, and I'm thinking, what are you going to get yourself into? Do you ever feel like that yourself? Like after you uh, start to, you know, you chose the car. Okay, it's good TV and everything, but you know, you start to back off, and you think, oh, okay. Mm. Let me tell you a secret about that. There is not one project that we've ever done or I've ever done. I don't think that anybody's ever done. When they get about three quarters of the way through it, they wish they had to pick something else. It, it just it's uh, it's some it's uh, it's a long drawn out process. It sometimes isn't all that fun. You think it's going to be fun, but when you get about three quarters of the way through it, it's you get kind of tired at it. This is these guys that build these cars for like the Riddler and stuff. They work on these cars. Some of these guys mm-hmm. work on these cars for ten years. Right? Like, how do you? How do you, that just, that amazes me still. You don't have 10 years, do you? I don't mean you yourself. You don't have 10 years left. Um, No. (laughs) Hopefully I got 10 years left. (laughs) I know what you're saying. You don't have 10 years to put into one vehicle. But it isn't like you work on it all the time. But it's just, 
it's the drive that you have to have to keep going. Like I say, sometimes when you're doing a project, that'll leave a little bit. You kind of lose your drive a little bit until something comes by and motivates you to continue on on it. And, you know, the motivation process of doing these builds is probably just as important as actually doing the build. Because if you didn't have the motivation, you'd never get through it. Like I say, it's, it's not easy sometimes. We're talking with uh, Avery Schof, uh Russ Valley Restores, uh, shot right here in BC, and you can see this on the uh, chorus platforms. And um, you're going to, uh, once you start to see this, uh, see some of the ingenious ways that you come up with. And I, I'm going to say that because you are a genius. As much as that guy in shop class that I used to see in the hallway, he was a genius. You know, you are one. Um, but... Uh, can we get really real for a moment here? Do you mind, Avery? Not a problem. Okay. Tell me about a moment where you may have been into one car in particular where you just said, no, I, I, I just, no, no, no. And you just didn't want to continue. Bring me into that. Be completely open and honest. Well, I'll be honest with you. That's just about every car that you do. Like I said before, there's a point that you get started on something that it just overwhelms you. There's just too many things happening. Like one problem after another problem after another problem. Like none of these builds are easy. They all come with their own particular can of worms, every one of them. You'll look at something. There's not a vehicle on the planet, I don't think, that's of the age that these cars are that doesn't have a story to tell. Once you peel the paint off it, It'll reveal all of its livelihood and happiness or unhappiness throughout the course of this vehicle's life, and sometimes it's not a it's not a good uh, it's not a good story that these cars tell you, and it can be very very uh, disheartening sometimes. But you just push through it. No, you know I am a story guy, and I agree completely. My whole life is revolved around telling stories, and uh, and I think a car does tell a story, and. You know, some of those stories uh, even make their ways into country songs more than anything else. Um, they do, don't they? Um, they 100% they do, yeah. But, uh, you know, when I start to think about the stories behind them and I think, uh, you know what, it's being brought back to life. Have you ever had some car that you knew, um, you know, just had a special story that touched you in a bigger way than any other car? You know... There is a few of them that we've done that absolutely kind of strike you a little bit about, you look at it and just kind of wonder the history that this vehicle's went through, and you learn a little bit about the history of it, and you go, wow, you know, is that ever interesting? Like, look at this vehicle's been, you know, the things that this thing has seen, it's been through, and it just, it just kind of strikes a chord with you sometimes. You know, I guess the very first vehicle, I think it was the first season we did, the, that red power wagon, the 40, mm-hmm. 1941, I do believe is what it was, for Richard. Um, that vehicle stuck a chord with me. I absolutely fell in love with that vehicle when I was doing it. And that's probably my favorite vehicle that we've done of all times. It was that power wagon. And it, it struck a chord with me that I just went, wow, this thing's seen a lot. It's been through a lot. And uh, I just absolutely love working on this vehicle. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I think of some of the best times I ever had. And we always look back into our own youth or whatever, and think of just the great times we had out partying and everything. The car was part of it, uh, you know, the car and the model and everything, but it was the fact that it was there during this time. Uh, And that could be uh, the conception of a child. I could say that this evening. That happens, right? It does. Could be a few of them happening in the backseat of a few of those cars. Right, right. (laughs) And they're big enough. Back then, you could actually 
Well, well, you know, you know where I'm going with that. Exactly, yeah. But it could also it was, be uh, just moments where you had that special road trip or something. And uh, that's when I see cars driving around. When I look at that car and I, you know, I pointed out to my 12-year-old son, I say, oh, that's a great car. And he picks up even on my excitement. He doesn't know the history or anything about the car, but uh, he does. The other thing I should mention that I really love with those cars, but I'm going to go back even a little bit further than the typical muscle car back into the late 1950s is the color, like the colors, the 1950s colors. You know what I mean? You know, color is an interesting thing. Like they had, there were some plain colors, but there were some really wild colors. And I think Dodge out of anybody, a little bit, I guess a little bit of, Later than that, probably into the 60s and stuff, when they come out on some of their vehicles, Dodge had the wildest colors ever. They had colors that it looked like somebody was on an acid trip or something when they painted them. But you know what? they become absolutely iconic today. Like, here's some wild colors. There are some wild colors, but there are also some really classic 1950s colors. And some of the vehicles, I think, uh, almost reflect the colors that you'd find in those uh, 1950s uh, uh, ice cream shops or uh, kitchens. You know, the the kind of that teal, bluey, green color, uh, the orange color. And I just love that, especially if I see that on a pickup. I think that is just magic for me. You know what? I'll have to agree with you. I love that teal color. Absolutely love that teal color. It's probably one of my favorite colors there is. The other thing about these older vehicles that always amazed me is the interior in these vehicles, the clock. It looks like somebody stole the curtains off the wall and sold them into some seats or something. Yeah. You know? But you know what? They're just iconic. You get in these older vehicles, and they just have a feel about them that you just, you just can't explain. And they, again, we go back to that certain smell. Like, these older vehicles, they got a certain smell to them other than racks. They, 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 have a, they, have a, they have a classic smell to them that you just, you just start to really, truly love. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, I think we replicate over the years uh, some of the uh, cars, and sometimes we do it really well. Sometimes we do it uh, poorly. Um, I'm thinking poorly like the PT Cruiser poorly. Um, but, again, just me. Yeah, that didn't turn out very good, that one, actually. No, it was no, it really didn't. And just kind of just lost traction. But uh, speaking of Chrysler vehicles, uh, Chrysler unveiled more details about his plans to discontinue the Dodge Charger and the Challenger, the new the new ones that came out. What do you think about that as a move? You know what? I It's progress, I guess, but is it going in the right direction? You know, they're an iconic car. They've been around since, what is it, about 65, 66 when them two cars come out. They're iconic. You know, Duke's a hazard. Um, several other yeah. shows that you think of that had them on it. You know, as growing up as kids, watching these vehicles, seeing these vehicles, I just, I don't know if I'm real happy about that myself personally. But I guess change is change. Whether it's for the better or for the worse, I guess we'll find out. Supposedly they got a whole new division of electric cars. Oh, I, I know. I um, just, yeah, that's fine. It's, you can always tell somebody driving an electric car on the road. Because 95% of them all drive the speed limit. (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. None of them speed because they're trying to save their battery power. (laughs) We had some guy the other day driving around the neighborhood out here looking for a battery charger. Like, where do you think you are? You're not in a city. There's no battery charger. 
<laughs> like, like, like you'll be pushing that hunkish pre-owned artifact pretty soon if you don't find any power for it. Like, people just, I don't know what they think. It, they get an electric car, they figure it'll go forever. Like, it just, it doesn't work like that. But it's also maybe a decision of the people that live in the cities. Like, oh, the whole world should have electric vehicles. You're not a city boy. You didn't grow up in the city. You grew up uh, in the interior. You know, the electric car, that's a whole can of worms you can open up and have a long discussion about it. You know, the day that police start driving electric cars in high-speed chases, it'll be fairly interesting. Yeah. Because it'll only last for a little while and run out of power. So <laughs> it, it'll, be in, it'll be interesting. I don't they'll, know. They'll tell the bad guys just to hold on when they pull into a charging station at the swimming pool. Well, if they could get into the charging station, like there'll be 10 other vehicles lined up there getting charged. Oh, like, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't understand the concept of that. It's a good idea. Or is it a good idea? Like, I, it's, you know, the going joke is, here's a guy, we're just charging his vehicle. They plug it in and a diesel generator starts up behind her to charge his vehicle. So it's kind of, I, it's a six and one half a dozen of the other, I guess. There's things for it or against it, but I don't know. I don't know. It's, it'll all find its way, I guess, but at what cost? Well, indeed, at what cost? Got to ask you the most important question, and I was reminded by uh, Ryan O'Donnell about this. I said, make sure you ask him. Um, you know, Avery, you deal with so many cars, and you have so many stories and so many restorations. You put your heart and soul into it. But I'm going to put you on the spot, and uh, I think this is going to be one where you really have to think about it. But what is your favorite all-time car and why? Oh, I like the older stuff. I like old Mercedeses. I love old boat tail Bugattis. Or Duesenbergs, oh. I should say. Supercharged Duesenbergs, Bugattis. I like the older stuff. Again, talking about the 40s and the 50s. That's the style that I do absolutely 100% love. And for some unknown reason, I have a true love for Austin Minis. I, why? I have no idea. When I was a very young child, I seen a really done up one. And coming down the road, it looked like a pregnant roller skate. And I just said, hey, man, I need one of those cars. And I've had one laying around in the backyard or somewhere. They race for the them last. now. They have mini races in some they parts always, of the world. They've always had mini races. Yeah. Like, they, 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 they do very well. And they've always done very well. They just don't go very fast. <laughs> they handle. Like, driving one is absolutely, there's nobody on the planet that hasn't drove, driven one that hasn't had a smile on their face when they got out of the car or smiling ear to ear driving it. I can't express myself. I don't know why or how come. You just do. It puts a smile on your face driving them. And they do smell like gas on the inside, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. Avery, you know, it's been a true pleasure. You're just uh, an absolute star. And I, I just hope we have a chance to meet. And uh, I hope I have a chance to talk with you again at some point. This has just been wonderful. It's been absolutely my pleasure talking to you. And you know what? We don't get very far away from the house. We're not very far away. If you're driving down the road, stop by and say hi. I will indeed. I will absolutely do that. You better believe I will. Avery Shelf and uh, the the TV series, of course. If uh, if you haven't caught it before, it's really worth it. Rust Valley Restores. Uh, you can catch it on the course, uh, different platforms. And uh, it's well worth uh, seeing what he gets himself into. But more importantly, what he gets himself out of uh, with just a beautiful restoration. Thanks again, Avery. You know what? My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, and you guys have a nice day. 
This is the Shift Podcast. And this is Bruce Claggett in for Shane Hewitt on the shift along with Ryan O'Donnell and Brendan Kelly. We're talking about your favorite cars, be they muscle cars or something else, the cars that you had a story behind or else some sort of admiration for but never had the money to actually afford it. Uh, cars are a big part of our lives, like it or not, and we're talking about some of those great stories behind them. You can give us a text or a phone call. The phone number, 877-399-9898. Once again, 877-399-9898. And Steve, uh, Steve says, not my favorite car, but a beautiful car is the 1967 Cougar XR7. The 67 Coug XR7. I know the car. I had a uh, teacher at BCIT that had that same car. And uh, yeah, it is a beautiful, beautiful car. And there were others around the same time that kind of looked like it, but that was just magic. Um, let's go to Calgary and Dave. Dave, the first car that you ever had was uh, a 66 Mustang? Yeah, like they, they, like they, they, I think it was the second year they were made. I guess the, the real little pony car. I paid $800 for it, and it cost me 1200 to take it to a little shop to get it fixed up so it wouldn't run properly. But, man, that thing was a great car. They, they took out the 6 and put in an 8, and uh, you have to move the console to actually shift from either in the park or low for the automatic. But I tell you, every, everything was wrong with that thing. It took the convertible work. Yeah. And you know, it was $1,200 back then to fix it up in a little shop. Springs were coming. You could see the springs through the uh, in the trunk in there. There's a hole in the floorboards and everything. Just rough because it was from Ontario, right? Man, that thing was in bad shape for an eight-year-old car. Well, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong uh, here, but I thought that the back in the day, um, the actual Mustangs, and even coming out with the early ones, uh, I guess it was like, what, 1965 or 66 it came out, um, but uh, or 65 and a half, I forget, you're going to be, if you're a real Mustang fan, you correct the person on that. Yeah, mine, but, is, mine is the second year at least, of those. it wasn't the first one. Okay. Uh, you mentioned pony car. Is the difference between the pony car then and the regular Mustang uh, just whether it was a V6 or a V8? Well, it had a six in it originally, and then they put a two eighty nine in it. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it was, but it was it was a small Mustang, the two door thing, was, you know, not the big huge one. Yeah, it was basically the original style. But when I bought a new car, the best one I think I ever had was it was an eighty five, and to me, to buy something new, it's got to be standard, not these automatics. Yep. But it had a one point five liter engine in it. And it actually got better mileage in the city than the highway, but it was about 40 either way. But it was one of those uh, Mazdas, the GLC. Yeah, I've heard good things about it. Uh, conversely, some uh, you mentioned Mazda, and only by name do we uh, go back to the old story of the rotary engine and the Mazda back in the 70s, and that was a disaster. My dad had a Mazda, and I know it was always in the shop, and it had an impact on uh, on how our household was because Geez, he put so much money into getting that car fixed, and that was with the rotary engine. Mazda uh, rebuilt their name and uh, came out of that, and uh, the rotary engine, though fascinating, uh, was not the success story. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. I never, I never, I, I didn't think much of a rotary engine, but, I mean, they were nice-looking cars, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, they were. I, I liked it. Like, it had a glass, uh, 
a glass moon roof with a, a wire mesh in it. That was the neatest thing about it. Yeah, absolutely. Dave, thanks for your call. I appreciate that. Let's go over to uh, London and George. George had a 66-67 uh, Chevy Coupe. George, tell yeah. me about your Chevy Coupe. Well, I had one when I was 18 years old, a 66. It was a, it was a super sport, and uh, it was a 327, 350 horsepower, four-speed. And I tell you, that thing was amazing. And uh, I owned it. I owned it for many years, and then a friend of mine was just bugging me to sell it to him, so I sold it to him, and then I started looking for one the next day. And uh, now I got a 67. It's not what that one was, but they are beautiful cars. Those 66 and 7 Chevy 2s, I think they're the classiest little Chevys that they ever made. Is it the look? Yeah, George, is it the look or the performance that makes it such a beautiful car? Well, it's both, really. It's the it's look. It's kind of a European kind of a look at that time. And uh, But they, the, the, they put that 327, 350 horse in them. And I'll tell you, it was like the car only weighed about 3,000 pounds. So your weight to power ratio was amazing. And they came with a four-speed, a monthly four-speed, and a 12-ball rear end. I mean, these things, were they're worth like 50 grand today if you get a nice one, you know. No, absolutely. I and mean, in, in, in mint shape, they're worth fifty and even more, even up to a hundred. It's crazy what they're worth. But I had bought mine. My first one was a '66. I paid four hundred bucks for it, and I had no idea what I had. But uh, it was amazing. But well, anyway, I'm glad you could go back and at least revisit and find another one just like it. Thanks a lot, George. I appreciate the call. Um, it's funny because George talks about that uh, weight to uh, engine ratio. And um, 10 years later, and uh, as I said, not a car that is a muscle car at all, but my Ford LTD, 1977 Ford LTD, first car I ever had, so it's going to have a special place in my heart. But um, the problem with it, it was such a heavy car. So even with a V8 302, it really you know, just didn't do much. Uh, Still had that nice feel. It floated down the freeway, and that's awesome. But uh, the rest of it, nah, nah, just didn't uh, do it. Um, Catherine, Catherine writes, uh, you know, maybe the Dodge Charger will keep Charger for the electric car name because it's a play on words, and maybe the Charger Electric. Yep, heard that one before, Catherine, and you're quite right. Uh, It it carries a whole new meaning to the word Charger. Ryan O'Donnell. Ryan, uh, I know that uh, you don't uh, have a car right now, but you are one that appreciates nostalgia. We've established that. What are your your favorite cars from a distance? Uh. Well, my all-time favorite car, it might be a bit of a surprise, is the Nissan GTR. It's my absolute favorite car. It's my dream car. It is a car that I would give anything for. You might be able to, somebody outside is revving their engine really loud, which is kind of perfect timing for this. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can actually hear that. No. But somebody is, I actually think it's there is a Challenger that is down the street for me. Um, but the GTR, man, I mean, the skyline from the 80s and the 90s is beautiful, but this modern gtr that kind of threads the needle between a supercar and 
uh, and a sports car is just amazing. The customization, the simple but elegant look that people can really camp up with an amazing paint job. The fact that every single engine is handmade in an airtight room so that not a single grain of dust gets on the engine before it leaves the factory. I mean, stuff like that. That all contributes to it. Um, but if I had to pick a car today to buy, like if I ran out and bought a car, it would be like Avery and this made me smile when he said it, it would be a Mini Cooper. My absolute favorite day to day, like everyday car. Yeah. And it's funny because perfect size, they seem so fun to drive to. Avery is, is quite right. Uh, anytime I've seen somebody come out of a Cooper, I've seen a big smile on their face. It's almost like they know something the rest of the world doesn't. They must be an absolute hoot. To drive, um, I've never been in a Cooper. Uh, I I think I wouldn't be able to fit in one. You know, I'm no, 225 pounds, six foot three. You know, I, I don't know if that would actually work, but uh, or maybe it would work in just the most wonderful way. But uh, they're really quite something for cars. Um, love those uh, just for the the look and the feel and kind of like the sight gag of it. Uh, in Coquitlam, we have Wayne. Wayne had a 65 Acadian. Tell Cancel. me about that, Wayne. Yeah, 1965 Acadian Cancel Sport Deluxe 327, number 6 with the 327. And it's black on black. It's got uh, two-speed, which is a killer, with uh, with uh, standard brakes. I raced the guy the other day, you uh, Camaro, and I took him off the line. But uh, when I hit the brakes, there the brakes were warm. But... Uh, Beautiful car to drive, uh, and uh, like I said, it's fully loaded. Wayne, what do you have? Um, what other cars have you had that are more modern? Uh, what's uh, the most modern car you've owned? Uh, well, I'm driving uh, two CTSs, uh, Cadillacs, and an Escalade. I've had uh, Porsche Cayennes. I've had BMWs, 560 Mercedes. I've uh, traveled around and uh, had quite a few cars. The only one I'm looking for right now is a Lamborghini. Wow, yeah. So you like the power behind the car? I like the looks. I'm in my late 50s, and uh, the kids are both married off, and it's time for me to grow. So what, uh, like I said, I'm looking at a Lambo right now, and uh, my buddies have, and they're a beautiful car. You want to get them with a, with a uh, timing chain, not belts and the Ferraris. But uh, I love my cancel. Everywhere I go with that, the old-timers come out, and they say, I remember that car. I went to the New West Car Show, Instead of taking my 67 Fastback, because there was 25 of them there, my wife says, take the cancel down there. Took the cancel. I got more attention. All the boys with the Mustang said, move your car, get out of here, because everybody was showing the attention to my cancel. I remember some time ago, Wayne, uh, that I read a story. It must have been, it was one of the Italian sports cars, and I'm thinking of me being Ferrari, yeah. uh, talked about uh, coming out with an electric version of oh. the Ferrari. And I thought, okay, that's going to get people upset. Wayne, what do you think? Italian car. Listen, I rode in my buddy's uh, uh, Tesla the other day, and I want to tell you something. If you got hypertension and the the way the vehicle takes off and goes, you get dizzy and you get nauseous. I'm not electric yet. I uh, I would go with the gas and electric, but a fully uh, uh, Tesla, no, I'm, I'm not for that. I, I hope the day that it doesn't come within 20 years that I have to make that change. Wayne, I appreciate the phone call. 
and uh, stay safe when you're driving those cars and uh, stay legally. But uh, I appreciate the uh, phone call there. That's Wayne and Coquitlam. Uh, a couple other interesting uh, text messages we got. Hi, guys. Evan from London, Ontario, nighttime truck driver. Always listen to the show. Favorite vehicles? I can't pick just one, but uh, for him, it was vintage VW Bugs, like 70s vans with the artwork, all the older ones. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, Trucker Dan, uh, fellow trucker, but uh, from the West Coast, uh, the REO Speedwagon will always have a special place in my heart. Yes, the one that uh, the band was named after, the REO Speedwagon. I remember in my early years uh, working with a announcer who called it the real Speedwagon. Yeah, probably happened more than once. Uh, just some great, uh, great uh, text from from our uh, shift heads. Um, what about you, Brendan Kelly? Cars, you got a favorite? Uh, yeah, visually, my favorite has always been the 1969 Dodge Daytona in what is called a Petty Blue, because it's Richard Petty used to race that car right, back yes. in the day with the big wing on the back. I think they just look so cool. Um, yeah, if I had a million gazillion dollars, I would totally get one and restore one and just just have it just to display, like not even to drive. I mean, I'd still drive around on it, with it as well. I don't know how it would fare on the narrow streets of Vancouver, but uh, it would be, yeah, it would be, that would be my dream car for sure. Yeah. Um, would you, how much would you pay for a car if you had all the money in the world, like uh, won the lottery and, uh, you know, okay. now you're making more than the big bucks in radio. Um, but uh, how much would you budget for a car? Okay, if I if I won the lottery, then, yeah, I could, uh, you know, I could go up to, depending on the car, I could go up to, you know, 100, 200 grand if it's a, an amazing, you really? know. Really? Yeah. Um, but that would have to be a top of the line, you know. Yeah, you see, like I don't know if I actually would ever, uh, even if I had your $10, $15, 20000000 million, I don't know if I, in today's dollars, I think my cutoff might actually be about a hundred grand. Yeah. And, uh, you know, today I, I'm looking more toward your Jeeps and your off-road vehicles, uh, a nice Rubicon. Uh, well, Rubicon uh, fully, you know, with everything is about a hundred grand, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, a car is a depreciating asset, of course, 100%. So, I mean, anything, I guess, modern, current, Yeah, may, I might not spend a lot of money on, like, a current vehicle, but if I was going to get a 1969 Dodge Daytona, yeah, like, especially if I was just going to keep it on display, then 100%, I would uh, spend a pretty penny on it. Absolutely. Let's close it out with uh, Tina and Calgary uh, writing in to us. Uh, hi, Bruce. Hi, Bruce and DK or DJ BK. Uh, Bruce, you mentioned that your car was so heavy. Uh, goes on to say, my first car, a tiny 1970s Fiat, was so light that some of my so-called friends in high school, I love this because you know where this is going, Fiat, high school, light, yeah, actually lifted it up and over the fence surrounding the football field and left it smack dab on the 50-yard line. I was more than surprised to discover it at midfield at midfield after school. We've all heard stories about that and the light uh, vehicles that could be moved. Uh, smart cars. I remember when they came out, lots of stories about those. Uh, yes, the memories. 
This is the Shift Podcast. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Hey, thanks for being along with us tonight. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Shane Hewitt on The Shift. And let's talk a little bit about smart people and where they hang out. And by that, I mean the smartest of the very smart. The top scientists, the physicists from around the world right now are gathered in Vancouver. Why? Well, they're here for the Quantum Gravity Conference. And who knows, perhaps they might just figure out the theory of everything. So what are they doing in a Canadian city? Why are they here? Well, let's turn to our favorite science nerd, Andrew Ferreira. Thank you for being with us, for joining us to talk about science, including this convention. And speaking of which, tell me about this conference and this Quantum Gravity Institute in Vancouver. This is a relatively new thing. Um, it's in fact an entire institute that they're basing out of Vancouver here. Um, and it's kind of strange because people don't really think of Canada or even specifically Vancouver as a uh, hotbed for um, high-level theoretical physics. Uh, but for years and years and years out at the University of British Columbia, they've had uh, one of the world's uh, foremost particle accelerators, a synchrotron accelerator. Yeah. Uh, Triumph, that's correct. Um, and then even out east near, uh, I believe it's attached to the University of Waterloo, they have the, um, oh, what's the institute called out near Waterloo? Uh, Perimeter Institute, I believe. Um, and they do a lot of high, uh, kind of high-level theoretical physics work. Um, but this is an entirely new um, kind of institute, an entirely new conference. And some of the people um, speaking at this conference are quite literal juggernauts of the field, uh, like Roger Penrose. If you know anything beyond uh, enthusiast level about black holes, you worship Penrose, and you probably have a poster of some of his work. Uh, Kip Thorne, um, he's done work on, uh, he's done actually an amazing job um, popularizing a lot of uh, high-level mathematics and science. Um, and he's also done a whole lot um, in terms of, I remember my first exposure to Kip Thorne, I believe, was when he worked uh, as an adjunct uh, on the animated television program that never seems to die, uh, Futurama. Oh, yeah, um, right. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure Kip Thorne worked on Futurama. And so that was probably my first um, exposure to him. So it's it's super interesting to me just to see like people like these, you know, headlining this. But um, going through the list of other speakers, uh, and they don't immediately strike me as necessarily, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, physics uh, gurus. There's a, a lot of... Um, other like community groups as well. Uh, Concord Pacific has a speaker. Uh, there's even a, a winery. Uh, uh, the Friend Estate Winery has a speaker for this conference, so you, you know where to find me if I'm going. Well, you, um, Andrew, and, and let me just stop you there for a second because I was surprised and shocked too, not knowing much about the conference. I was also impressed, I should say. But um, <laughs> it's like, wow, Vancouver, really? But right. um, I started to take a look at this, and I'm thinking, oh, it's also got some big names in Vancouver uh, business. And, uh, yeah, the winery is its kind of like, what's going on here? Is it kind of like a, a tip of the hat, a recognition that, um, you know, science nerds in the top are really bringing in something that uh, we want to capture? Like, what is the business community doing here? 
Well, a lot of this, and uh, going through some of the some of the reportage for it, um, uh, Terry Huey of Concord Pacific is one of the speakers. Yeah. Uh, and fun fact about him, he studied physics as part of his undergrad, um, and he was asked, you know, why why would Vancouver host this event? And his response was nice and simple, because we can't. Right. Yeah. Um, so that kind of just like slapped the, well, why us? Because why not us? Right. Um, you know, some people say, why is the Perimeter Institute out at Waterloo? And the question, the answer really should be, why not? Right. Why can't Canada have, you know, a big part of this pie? Um, now, I know we're talking about this quantum gravity uh, conference and quantum gravity institute. Uh, and I'll do my best to summarize an extremely theoretical body of work that has not been uh, formalized or verified uh, that has perplexed the greatest minds uh, on this planet since Einstein. Um, but Andrew, you're going to take it right down and sum it up in two sentences, right? Oh, I'm going to do my darndest. I'll tell you <laughs> what. <laughs> now, basically, we have to go back to Einstein because Einstein's rules and equations essentially laid out the foundation of how we believe as best as we do right now, how the universe works. Theory of uh, relativity. Exactly. The imagery of, you know, space time being one thing uh, and space time acting like a fabric can then with Quantum gravity is seeks to take gravity and break it down uh, into a force that you can well, what they say is they quantize it. You can turn it into little bits. For instance, radiation, light, we can quantize that, and the bits and pieces of light are photons, right? We can quantize uh, all of the forces uh, into their respective particles or force carriers. Uh, so for electromagnetic radiation, it is uh, the photon or the electron. Uh, for, you know, the weak and strong nuclear forces, they have their own you know, particle or force carrier that does the job for them. But gravity doesn't. Gravity is a bit of a, a weird force in that we can't, for the life of us, figure out how gravity really truly works at a fundamental level. Uh, and quantum gravity is just one potential uh, theory uh, in order to try and unify two major kind of pillars in science. And the first one is Einstein's aforementioned theory of relativity. And the theory of relativity has so far uh, batted a thousand at almost every single uh, stage when it comes to, you know, studying the universe at its biggest, uh, widest expanses, all the way down to the smallest. But then we get to the really, really small, and suddenly relativity doesn't work. Uh, and Take so, that, Einstein. Well, exactly. You know, Einstein was doing so well with that right up until the very, very tiniest, you know, subatomic scale, and suddenly uh, the mathematics gets all funky. Uh, you know, <laughs> infinities and zeros start appearing where there really shouldn't be. Um, mm. And so this is, you know, obviously a big issue, and so quantum gravity is one of the potential ways that people want to fix this, to unify um, Einstein's theory of relativity so that it works from the smallest, uh, you know, the smallest potential scales all the way to the largest. Because right now, uh, we've, it feels like, depending on what school you're in, uh, we've got essentially 95% of the foundation nailed down, but this last little bit that refuses to sit still uh, has the potential to completely break the entire, uh, really, model if 
quantum gravity or something else is found to be something that is incompatible with Einstein's theory of relativity, then perhaps Einstein's theory of relativity is not actually the foundation or framework of the universe. And if that's the case, well... Then you have to throw the whole thing out, don't you? Exactly. Wow. That's going to... So, uh, you know, it's, could it's that happen? Could that happen out of this conference? I, I'm just throwing it out there. Could somebody uh, get the whiteboard out and uh, start to put a whole bunch of math equations up there and suddenly everyone looks at it and says, oh, no, we've got something. It's certainly possible. There's, you know, of course, you know, when it comes to science nowadays, it's much more about the, you know, the dizzying mathematics and the hours and hours of, you know, particle accelerator time that needs to go into discoveries. Um, it's not like before where people would, you know, would, would hammer out their theses and throw them off a balcony. Um, but it's very possible that, you know, the very future of, you know, physics on the grandest scales could have some roots here in Vancouver. Uh, and I think that even just the possibility of that, um, you know, all the other goodness coming out of a potential, you know, institute and, and uh, society and event uh, all of that sure is nice, but if Vancouver can have yet another gigantic role to play, even if it's within, you know, a, a 100,000 chapter book, uh, if we can have one chapter in that book, I think that's a victory. Andrew, uh, that gets into the expression, I guess, of uh, they're all here to, uh, you know, crack the theory of everything. How does it relate exactly. to the theory of everything? I mean, if uh, if uh, this starts to fall, if Einstein's uh, theory starts to fall, if that pillar does come down, um, what happens to academia? Well, uh, what happens to academia is what has always happened to academia is that it will have to pick up the pieces and continue trudging on. Um, because really, uh, quantum gravity does offer a potential theory of everything, a way to uh, analyze everything from the smallest possible uh, you know, subatomic pieces to, you know, the activity of galaxies and black holes, uh, and even answering questions around uh, dark energy and dark matter, which make up, you know, 95 plus percent of the universe. The stuff that makes up you and me and, uh, you know, the connection that we have right now is a minute fraction of anything there ever was or will be. Uh, if we're able to crack the code as to figure out what exactly is going on across universe from its smallest to largest pieces boy howdy that'd be something but if we figure out that what we're doing right now is barking up the wrong tree well then they're just gonna have to go up another one <laughs> i like how you say that so that's uh that's the theoretical side of this and uh mm -hmm. the task ahead but what's really happening on the ground how many uh scientists have come in for this conference in vancouver and uh what are they going to be doing like what would a day typically be like at this well now as a bit of a preface, uh, I am no high-level theoretical physicist. Um, otherwise, perhaps I might, you know... But you are a keen again observer. For, for, you are... I might, uh, I might sneak in for the, for the winery panel. But um, <laughs> a lot of, you know, a lot of what would happen at these is keynote addresses by physicists who are, you know, talking about their ideas, right? And that's really what this is. It's the exchange of ideas, um, you know... People like Sir Roger Penrose and Kip Thorne. Um, there's another uh, Nobel laureate, Jim Peebles, who's also there. Uh, these people will be, you know, essentially disseminating their ideas. And other people in the crowd will either agree or disagree, and there will be heated conversations behind the scenes. And then other people 
will go on up to the stage and give their own account of it. And these conversations will continue and continue. And this really is the you know, foundation of academia, right? The exchange of knowledge, uh, the exchange of ideas and the exchange of perspectives when it comes to the study of something. Um, just in the same way that, oh, you know, dental conferences are about different, you know, procedures when it comes to dental work and just how, uh, you know, hospitality conferences are about different ways to better serve, you know, customers. Physics conferences are very much just a discussion of the subject matter. Um, and it's through these discussions that they hope to try and get a glimpse of, you know, some of the grandioseness uh, that Einstein was able to take a look at. Now, do these physicists, uh, astrophysicists and uh, whatnot, do they actually uh, go onto social media and use hashtags like, uh, I don't know, other people? Or do they wait <laughs> and uh, journal it and do it uh, properly? What type of folks are they? Oh, they're everywhere. They're all over the spectrum. Some of these folks are, you know, Sir Roger Penrose, for instance, he's a, uh, you know, a, 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 he's a dignified older man. He probably doesn't use Twitter all that much. But some of the other um, professors, uh, scientists and physicists here are probably, you know, normal folks. You know, I put normal in air quotes, um, just like you or me. And, you know, as as the field kind of matures and, and people come up, you know, in academia throughout the social media era, uh, we're seeing kind of this new, I don't know, vanguard of, of public-facing physicists who are weaponizing, to use one phrase, uh, social media. Wow. Uh, to really kind of disseminate their ideas at top speed and connect with people, you know, to um, so, not necessarily physics related, but two of the people right. I think of are Phil Plate. Um, he's a he's an astronomer, does a lot of outreach on that front, and I also think of Sophia Godnasser, and she does a lot of kind of online, especially Twitter and uh, TikTok. Actually, a lot of uh, you know professional uh, kind of not professional, but like this very public-centric discussion about these very high-level topics. And I think that's a fantastic way to get it done. I'm thinking about the Big Bang Theory and uh, <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and that group in here. Uh, is that kind of typical of uh, the type of characters you find? I mean, I would think so. You know, uh, you have to have a brain for these, you know, literally and figuratively out of this world ideas. You have to have that kind of extreme, not just belief, but conviction in something that the work that you're doing is so fundamental uh, that it can explain the world around you. Um, so in a way, like you always like to see, you know, famous physicians like the, the late great Richard Feynman, you know, people describe them as, you know, weirdos. Um, as, you know, antisocial, um, you know, they were always far more concerned about, you know, their work than they were ever about other people or their relationships. Because the uh, other so, people just don't get it. <laughs> but it's, it's, the, it's the window into that that, like, I find super interesting. That's why I kind of love um, kind of reading about, like, the personas behind it, because the science is incredible. Um but the people behind the science are there as well, I think. I uh -huh. just find this so fascinating that these people are gathered in a Canadian city. Um, that's terrific. Uh, Andrew, I, mm -hmm. share, I share your, your excitement with this. 
But uh, before you go, I want to touch on one other thing. Uh, a yeah. rocket on the launch pad and uh, heading to the moon this time. What's this all about? Yeah, so NASA's uh, SLS, its Space Launch System, uh, say what you will about it, um, you know, complain, and many people will, um, is, you know, it took a 10-hour, four about four miles, so what is that, can you be about seven and a half kilometer trip um, to the launch pad from its kind of housing uh, down at uh, Cape Canaveral. Um, and it's, you know, essentially a rocket as tall as a soccer field. It's, 100, it's 98 meters tall. Um, and it's aiming for an August 29th liftoff for uh, a lunar test flight. Um, and so this kind of SLS is NASA's to really It's part of NASA's Artemis program. Um, and if you're thinking Artemis kind of sounds familiar, mm-hmm. well, yeah, that's because mythologically related to Apollo. Um, and so this is kind of the first test flight for this rocket. Um, and initially, the kind of timeline for getting humans to the moon again was 2024, but that has been bumped forward a little bit because of the delays with, uh, you know, getting this system ready, the SLS. Um, some complaints have been said about how it's not really uh, innovative. It's more or less just kind of using uh, Apollo-era technology and just kind of running with it and hoping it works. Um, but if it does work, it and I have, you know, confidence um, in, in the Artemis and the SLS rocket because it uses the Apollo architecture. And we saw the Apollo architecture work very well. It did send people to the moon and bring them back. Um, so I have confidence that it'll work. However, um, you see the challenges from people such as, or, you know, or companies, actually, I should say now, such as SpaceX, who are pioneering, you know, tremendous leaps of engineering, you know, almost magic. Uh, being able to land rockets like it's a ballet performance. Yeah. Um, and NASA's gone with the tried and true, we'll stick these big old, you know, essentially uh, towers full of explosives and just kind of shed them off and dump them into the ocean as we get to space. Um, it'll make for one heck of a sight. Uh, SLS is an absolutely imposing thing. Um, and if it, you know, launches on August 29th, it's not the only chance they have. They have a couple of launch windows uh, spanning the end of August and the meeting of September. Um, but seeing that thing take off will be absolutely incredible. And for a lot of folks, um, you know, who weren't alive for the Apollo missions, and I spoke to, um, uh, I spoke a couple of years ago to David Chudwin. He's uh, the only college uh, journalist who was officially sanctioned by NASA to cover the Apollo oh, uh, mission. Okay. Yep. Um, I spoke to him a, a couple of years ago, um, and he remarked to me that SLS, you know, having that launch and seeing it go around the moon will be the birth of an entirely new generation of people with a genuine vested interest. You know what's interesting about that, Andrew? Uh, There's more of a chance of seeing it uh, because back in the day, and I mean, I was born around the time of that happening. Uh, So I I was there, but not really there. Um, (laughs) But uh, I I knew it was something that was carried on network television. And uh, back in that day, there were only three American networks. Well, now it's, uh, it's not just TV. I mean, this is carried everywhere and on social media live. So this allows people to really partake on a massive scale and from almost anywhere, right, in watching um, and this. It, 
And that's exactly right. And that's what I think is just absolutely fantastic about this opportunity is that soon, you know, in you know a matter of a couple of weeks, it won't have to be groups of people crowding around a TV. You know, you might walk, you might step onto, you know, a, you know, a metro train or a bus and see everybody on their phones looking down at this rocket heading towards the moon. And I think that when that happens, that has a chance to be, um, just like Apollo was, a bit of a unifying force. Yeah. It's kind of uh, awe-inspiring to watch something like that happen. Um, and that's how I feel whenever I watch even the smaller SpaceX launches. It's always just, uh, like, astounding to me that... Um, you know, I can watch rockets go to space live in real time, you know, on my phone. Like, that's just insane. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.